might be listening or watching, and in fact, uh, both you here and those online have an opportunity to make use of sermon notes. For you here, they're found in your service folder. For those online, all you have to do is uh, press the notes tab, and you can uh, have a PDF of that and follow along with those notes as well. A few months ago, our high school ministry, we call it Nexus, went out on a little bit of an outing, uh, sort of a getting to uh, just get outside of our building to have some fun together type of outing, and we went to Sky Zone in Woodbury. Maybe some of you have heard of Sky Zone, maybe some of you have been there before, but basically the way I would describe it is it's like a big playground for kids and adults made entirely of trampolines. And so for someone in their late 30s, another way to think of Sky Zone is a place to go to tear your ACL, okay? Which, thankfully, that didn't happen, but instead, we had a a lot of fun. And in fact, the thing I liked most about Sky Zone was a game that you can play, again, all all with trampolines, there's a picture of it here, Um, dodgeball at Sky Zone. And so basically what happens is not only the people in your group, but really anybody in the whole building is invited to be on one of two teams. And there could be five people, there could be 10 people on a team, there could be 25 people. I think it was more in the 20 range when we were there on each side and on each team. Now, for those of you who know some things about me, you probably know that I am very competitive by nature. Um, I think that God created games not to have fun, but so that there would be winners. And so (laughs) that's kind of how I go at things a little bit with games is that I really want to win. And as I've gotten older, most of the time I've kind of tempered that a little bit, but still I naturally go after winning. And so as you can imagine, that's kind of how I went out after when it comes to dodgeball, to win, my team to win. Well, we had about three games in a row where very close to the beginning, I just got nailed and I got out right away. And so coming into the fourth time, I noticed something that I got hit by the same middle school age kid every single time. He wasn't from Bethlehem. He was someone, you know, some, from somewhere else, but he got me out every time. And as I was watching him the fourth time, I, I noticed that he would just kind of sort of hang out in a corner in the back of the 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 area. And then like when I was throwing, so I'm vulnerable, you know, whatever, he would just whip the ball at me and nail me in the head or in the gut or in the leg. And I'd get out every single time. And so again, remember I'm competitive. Right then and there, my goal changed. It wasn't to win. My goal was to get that middle school kid out of the game as quickly and as often as I possibly could. And I am very excited to report that it happened a lot, that I got him out often and quickly, and I'm a little more less excited to tell you that sometimes it was uh, accompanied him getting out with a woohoo or a see you later. I, I thought about dabbing, but I didn't, uh, didn't do that. Um, but I was way excited to, to get him out, and as I... If you think it's a little bit weird for a mature adult to be so into getting a middle school kid out of dodgeball, you are exactly right. And I, over the last two months, have come to realize that with help of my counselor, that I was totally wrong in the way that I was acting in that moment. Now, let me say this. 
I'm exaggerating a little bit. Not that I didn't go after this middle schooler, but that it was more fun than anything. I actually talked with him after the games and like, hey, you seem to always throw the ball at me. I'm going to get you next time. And we actually became friends through the night. So it wasn't this vindictive thing. But at the same time, in the moment, as I noticed this same kid getting me out every time, something happened inside of me and I had the wrong, I lived according to the wrong identity. Here's the identity that I was living with. I was living in that moment as a competitive juvenile. The problem is that's not really my identity. My real identity is a mature adult most of the time. Oh, and by the way, it gets worse. And a pastor. And I was not living that way because I forgot who I was, all right? And this brings us to a truth that is is just accurate whether you are someone who believes what the Bible says or not. This is just a truth that is is real, and you can test it, our first fill-in, that who you are affects how you are. And what I mean by that is what you find as your primary sense or source of identity is going to affect how you feel and how you act. If I'm identifying as a competitive juvenile, it's going to affect how I react to a middle schooler versus if I were thinking, oh, wait, I'm a mature adult and a pastor, I would act totally differently. Where you find your primary source of identity makes a huge difference in how you feel and how you act. Let me give you some examples. Sometimes young people, I was one of them, find not just an identity, that's okay, but their primary source of identity in being an athlete. What happens then is this. When you don't make the team, when you don't get the scholarship, or when your career someday is over, if that is your primary identity, you find this big hole in your life because you can't do that which was all that you did and all that you centered your life around. Um, This happens with academics, where young people will want good grades so badly, and wanting good grades is a good thing, but wanting them so badly that if they don't get the right GPA or don't get into the right school, it's as if their world has crumbled. Your world has not crumbled. You just didn't get into the school that you wanted to be at or be in. You gave it your best shot. That's all you can do. Parents, this happens to us. Sometimes parents find their primary identity in being a parent. Being a parent is a good part of your identity, but when it becomes primary, what happens is when the kids leave the house, you are hopelessly lost for a while because you centered your entire life and who you are around being a mom instead of, or a dad, instead of something else. And this happens to all of us. Sometimes you find your identity in being right, or being the best, or being competitive, or being successful. But wherever it is you find your primary identity, it is going to affect how you are. The things you get most stressed about are probably linked towards the things where you find your identity in. Probably nine times out of ten. So here's the question. What should be our primary identity? 
And is there an identity that if we centered our entire lives around it, would bring peace no matter what happens, would bring confidence, would bring joy, even in the midst of losing the game or not getting into the school or the kids leaving the house or whatever else? What is our primary identity? That's what we want to talk about today as we turn to a section of Scripture uh, called Titus. Now, the reason it's called Titus is because a pastor named Paul wrote some encouragement to a pastor that he was mentoring, and his name was Titus. Titus was a pastor over some churches um, just south of Greece on an island called Crete, and Paul knew that Titus needed some encouragement, needed some direction, It seemed as if the Christians in Crete were having an issue with living according to the way that God wanted them to, and so there was this entire section where Paul was giving Titus some, I guess, encouragement of how to act and interact with these Christians that he was pastoring. And in the midst of that, Paul talks about identity. Now, before it gets good, It's bad, okay? Before we get to the good stuff, there's some difficulty that we need to first look at in the way that we used to be. So here's what Paul writes. He says, At one time, we too. Okay, at one time meaning before I was a Christian, at one time before I knew Jesus as my, my Lord and my Savior, we also, Paul Titus, us, we too, just like the Cretan Christians, we were foolish, we were disobedient, we were deceived and enslaved by all kinds of worldly passions, and we were enslaved by worldly pleasures. That's what directed us. That was what our primary identity was all around. And so in, in I guess, connection to that, what happened, the result is we lived in malice, envy, Look at their pleasures are better. They're, the things they get to do, the things they have, they're better. They lived in envy. And we were hated. We hated others. Paul describes activity that clearly is not one that we would, I guess, choose to have in our lives. And yet what Paul says is that all of those actions The how they were was symptomatic of who they were. And who were they? They were enslaved. At one time, they were enslaved. Um, It makes me think about uh, my senior year in high school, and we had during, I think it was Spirit Week or something, we had what was called a Slave Day, I guess is what they called it. But basically, underclassmen could buy or purchase seniors, and then they had to kind of do whatever the underclassmen who bought them wanted them to do. And so a locker mate of mine um, uh, bought me, and uh, uh, she basically made me wear a dress and high heels all day. Um, there is a picture of this somewhere. Um, I think she still has it, which I'm thankful it's not popped up anywhere online, and I pray that it doesn't. Um, but if you think about being enslaved, did I want to wear a dress that day? Let me be clear. No, I did not, okay? I do not, not again, wear high heels, okay? But on that day, I was enslaved. And so the, the who I was 
affected what I was doing. I, had, I was enslaved by this classmate. At one time, you and I were enslaved by sin. Now, there's still a little bit of that in us, guys. Even if we're Christians, there's still a little bit of that in us. Let, let me prove it, okay? I've given you this challenge before. No one has ever told me that they've been able to do it correctly, and I'm confessing to you, I have not been able to complete it. If you don't believe that you're not a little bit enslaved by sin, then go one day without sinning. Just one. Not a week, not two weeks, just one day, no sin, okay? No bad words towards people, no grumpy words, no back talk, no cheating, you know, on a test or cheating on your taxes, no, again, being mean towards people. And if you think, oh, you know what? I think I can do that. Well, then let me, you know, amp it up a little bit. Also, no sin in your thoughts, no greed, no discontentment, no thoughts of envy or of anger or of lust, no sin even in your thoughts, nothing. Everything pure, everything in line with God wants, okay? One day, can you do it? If you said yes, then pride is your issue because we cannot, We cannot because there's still a little bit of this in us, this being enslaved. But at one time, Paul's saying, that was our entire identity. We were slaves. Our identity was being slaves to sin. It wasn't a pretty picture, my friends. It wasn't a pretty picture. You know, like we always like to think the the best of ourselves and, and some of that's okay, but sometimes we get to be maybe a little bit naive about reality. Um, so I don't know if any of you have ever seen on, on Facebook this like little quiz thing you can do. I've never done it before, so I don't know exactly how it works, but like if you, f- you know, sort of do these this quiz, or maybe it's through the camera of your computer, but that you can find out which Disney princess you are. Like, that's that's the one I really want to do, is to check out what Disney, or what actor or actress, have you seen these things that, you know, that you most resemble or whatever? And of course, when we think about these things, it's always like, you know, Bradley Cooper or Ryan Reynolds or Jennifer Lawrence or whatever, you know, we, we tend to at times, not all the time, but many times, you know, hope for the best, right? But when it comes to God and when it comes to this being enslaved, it's not that pretty, okay? Here's the reality. It wouldn't come up as like Bradley Cooper, maybe something more like this. Next one. Does anyone recognize that guy? Like, I think if from a spiritual level, if we took the Facebook quiz, it'd come back as this guy from the Christmas story movie called, his name's Scott Farkas, okay? Even his name just sounds bad, okay? But there is no redeeming value in his character. I mean, he came into the Christmas story, and basically all he did was terrorize Ralphie, You know, he'd throw snowballs at him, chase him down the street, call him bad names. Nothing redeemable, nothing lovable in Scott Farkas. In a spiritual perspective, there's not a lot lovable about us on our own. Our identity is not a real good one on our own. 
we cannot be perfect, <laughs> much less we, we can't even go a day without sinning. Thankfully, God's working with us doesn't end there. Let's keep going in Paul's words. He changes or makes a contrast, but. So here's what your identity was. Now I'm going to talk about that. And God has done something different. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he. Now that, <clears throat> I thought that was interesting. Usually when you talk about kindness and love, it would be it. But here it's a he. It's a personal pronoun. It's, it's basically Jesus is the kindness and love of God. thought that was interesting. Jesus appeared. And when he appeared, what did he do with the scut farcuses of the world? Well, what it would seem he could have done was ignore us because he's perfect and we're not. He could have, remember what Ralphie did towards the end of the movie? He jumped on scut and started to beat him up. You know, it's kind of in his anger, just beat him up. So God rightfully could have done to us. That's what we deserved. But that's not what God did. He says, saved us. Blows my mind. Why? Why would he save us? Well, it's not because of good things we did. We, we don't have enough. We had some. Not enough to meet God's perfect standards. The reason he saved us is this little word that I don't ever fully understand, but I'm so, so grateful for. Mercy. Love that's not deserved. Love that loves even Scott Farkas. Love that loves those that don't deserve it. You've got to understand something. <laughs> Your relationship with God is not about you. It's all about God's love. This is our next fill-in. We are saved only because of mercy. We are saved because of mercy. Now, what about identity? <laughs> Paul goes on. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Now, first of all, remember, this is starting point, so we're starting from the beginning as if people didn't know anything. This washing is a reference to something called baptism. And baptism, simply stated, is an act that God has commanded Christians to do and very simply, you take water, you either pour it on someone or you dunk someone in water, and you say the words, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And the act of baptism is really, really simple and really, really clear. What seems like in Christian circles isn't as simple, it seems for some, is what the reason is for baptism. Maybe you've had a chance to talk with people. Maybe you've heard people talk with you about baptism and has been maybe described as something like this. Baptism is that day that you have an opportunity to declare that you believe in Jesus. Okay. The, 
real idea and meaning of baptism is so clear from Scripture, and it has not a lot, if anything, to do with us and what we do. It has everything to do with God. Look at this verse again. It says, he saved us through a washing that does what? It gives you a new birth. It gives you a new life. In the context of what we're talking about today, it gives you a new identity that through this baptismal event, there is a new birth. You're born again. Verse 7. So that, having been justified or declared not guilty by God's grace through baptism, we might become heirs. There's your identity. There's the identity that can be yours through Jesus, having the hope of eternal life. Heir, another word for a person who receives an inheritance. And who receives an inheritance? Someone who's part of the family. Who's part of the family? Children. Your identity that God most often talks about. And I want you to remember, if you're a Christian and someone asks you who you are or then you're just trying to ask yourself that, is that you are a child of God. Simple. Redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. That, my dear friends, is the gift of a new identity that needs to be our primary identity. Now, this whole baptism thing, wow, it seems like it's like some sort of a magical elixir. <laughs> let, me, let me talk about this just for a moment to make sure we're all on the same page because you might have some misconceptions about it. First thing, the water, it's just water. It, we don't bless it. it, we don't call it holy water. Um, Matt and I don't do some sort of, you know, baptismal dance around it to get it ready, you know, spiritually ready or something like that. Honestly, the only interesting thing about the water is that, you know, we have to choose whether to get it from the bathroom faucet or from the kitchen faucet, okay? It's just plain Lakeville water. And yet, it's part of this sacrament, and what gives it, I guess, its power is not in the water at all, but it's God working through it. Now, how does it work? Does baptism save in and of itself? Well, let's go back to verse 5. Who saved us? Remember what that pronoun was meant to refer back to? Jesus, right? Jesus saved us. How? Well, you know, through his death in our place, you know, he took the blows so that we didn't have to, even though we deserved them, through his resurrection. Make no mistake, it is Jesus' death and resurrection that saved us. But verse, next verse. But it's through the washing of rebirth. So here's what you need to understand. Baptism does not work in addition to Jesus' death and resurrection. Baptism doesn't work outside of Jesus' death and resurrection. Baptism is completely connected to Jesus' death and resurrection. Or another way to say that is our next fill-in, that baptism connects us to Jesus' saving work. 
Baptism connects us to the benefits of what Jesus did for us on the cross. So last week we talked about faith being needed to receive forgiveness. That if you think about how a water tower, the water in it doesn't do any good for the people in their homes unless there's pipes connecting the water to the faucet, right? Faith is like that pipe. And one of the ways that faith comes to us and that we receive the blessings of what Jesus has done is through the work that God promised that can happen and does happen in baptism. Faith is started. Faith is strengthened in baptism. And we are given a new identity through our baptisms. We are, as Jesus talked about with Nicodemus too, born again. Now, I just want to pause there and make sure that I'm being clear. There's a lot of different ways and places that you can find your primary identity. And we are always going to accidentally lapse into, and sometimes maybe it's willfully lapse into, finding our identity in the wrong places. But your primary identity, the thing you need to go back to time and time again, is that I am a child of God. I am a child of God. And what a blessing and what a gift that is. So what about the blessings as we close? What about the blessings of baptism moving forward? There are blessings that I want you, if you've been baptized, to go back to when it comes to your baptism. A few years ago, um, Carrie's grandparents were downsizing from a... Uh, a single-family home to a, a townhome. And so they accumulated a lot of stuff over the decades that they were at their house, and so they needed to get rid of a lot of stuff to fit into a smaller home. So they invited all the extended family to come up and to take some of the things uh, that they didn't have room for anymore. And so we, we went up to the, the UP and, uh, um, you know, helped uh, sort and took a few things home. And one of the things that we all found out as we were going through uh, uh, Grandpa's stuff was that on every, almost every single thing he owned, there were three letters, H and H. So like on the collars, not the collar, but the tag of most of his shirts, H and H. Um, on his scissors, H and H. On his tape dispenser, H&H, on his shovels, on his rakes, um, on his brooms. In fact, I brought with me today one of the spoils that I I took from uh, that trip. Um, And I did darken it so you could see it, but all I did was trace where it was. H&H, H&H on his snowblower, on his lawnmower. In fact, one of the games we started to play is, who's the first person to find the H&H on the next item, okay? Whoever could find it, you know, win a prize, okay? Now, if you aren't catching on yet to what this was, his name was Harold Nelson Herlick. And so H&H was his initials. And he had to put it on everything. Like, because you might lend out your scissors to someone in a different home and not be able to find it, or your tape dispenser, or, you know, you forget which lawnmower is yours. Oh, you know, there's my lawnmower. It had my initials on it, thankfully, you know. I don't know why. But what is clear is the fact that he put his initials on everything made it really clear that this was his broom. 
That's what God did to you or for you at baptism. He put his initials on you, said, you're mine. When Jesus died and rose again, the forgiveness that he won was for every single person who's ever lived, for billions and billions of people who have lived. And it was this very objective thing that was forgiveness for everybody. But at your baptism, God came to you in a very personal way. And that objective truth of forgiveness in a very personal way became your forgiveness. As through faith, you were connected to God's family. And baptism is something I pray you don't soon forget. Here's our last fill-in. Baptism declares who you are and whose you are. Declares who you are and whose you are. Can I speak for a moment just to those of you who have been baptized or have been in church for most of your life? Um, And I'm going to be a little rough with you here. But I just think it needs to be said. I think it's somewhat of a travesty that people, everybody here knows their birthday, but even long time, every week, church attenders have no clue when their baptism is. Well, I think it was, you know, the month I was born. That day is the day you were given your identity. It is such an important day. And I know just knowing the day, maybe not a big deal, but it it's indicates something. It indicates how much we rejoice in that day. July 2nd, 1977, the day that I was born again, that I had God's initials stamped on me. Now, here's when I want you to go back to your baptism. Here's when I want you to go back to it and remember that identity. I want you to do it on days that you doubt. Do I believe enough? Do I really have faith? Because your baptism is this very personal thing that God promises through it, you're born again. Now, for a person who's baptized, could they ever run away from God and reject God and lose the faith? Yes, that can happen. If a person wants to reject God and to erase the initials off themselves, so to speak, that can happen. But I'm talking about in those moments of doubt, you're not rejecting God, you're just not sure. Go back to your baptism. Maybe take the certificate out. Remind yourself, on this day, God promised to change me. (laughs) And he has. On days of doubt, go to your baptism. And on days of, I guess, on moments when we have lost direction, go back to your baptism. I look out here, And I see some awesome moms, some awesome dads, and some awesome teens and athletes and those who are really good at their jobs. But if you find your primary identity in those things, your primary, you're going to come to a day where you feel hopeless and frustrated and disappointed. But when your real identity is found in what Jesus did, what God did for you at your baptism, there's going to be a peace and a confidence that you will always have 
because it has made an eternal difference in your life, what Jesus has done for you and how he's connected you to that through your baptism. So if you're someone who has been baptized, I encourage you, think about it more. Use it as God intended, as confidence. For those of you who haven't this weekend and are thinking about it or would like to learn more, talk with me or Pastor Matt. We'd love to get you baptized. Next week, we're going to close out today, or close out our series, uh, a message about another gift that God has given us called uh, the Lord's Supper. But for now, let's close in prayer. Dear Holy Father, we thank you for the gift of baptism, and we thank you for the blessings that you have promised that come to us through it. All those blessings connected to the work of Jesus Christ on the cross in our behalf. We pray all this in Jesus' name and also pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.